Let's open up in prayer. Okay, Father, thank you so much. We have worshipped you through song and through giving and through fellowship. And now we worship you through your word. And that really is the center of our worship. It's your word. So even now, Father, prepare our hearts so that we do not approach you casually. Don't let us consider your revelation, the truth, in a flippant manner, Father. And to that end, I pray you would make me a humble and faithful communicator of your word to your people that, that they might hear your voice through, through your Holy Spirit and that you might apply the truth to each and every one of our lives and we might respond to your word with what uh, your Bible, with what your word tells us is the obedience of faith. And we ask this in the name of Jesus and we say amen. Well, beloved, if you're not already there, turn with me to the book of Jude. And if you are just joining us after being on vacation and you have to find it, it's the second to last book in your Bible. It's probably at one page, not more than two pages in your Bible. So uh, go ahead and turn there. We have spent the past two weeks getting through the verse, first 16 verses. God willing, we will get through the final nine here over the course of the next hour or so. And, and what we have learned in Jude thus far, what, what have we been challenged with? Well, we know, beloved, that if we are believers in Jesus Christ, that means we belong to Jesus Christ. That means we are slaves of Jesus Christ, as Jude calls himself, as Paul uses several times in his letters. We belong to Jesus. And so we must do what he tells us to do. And he tells us in Jude Three, that we must contend earnestly for the faith that has once for all been handed down to the saints. We must continually be contending for the gospel. And today we understand that that gospel of grace is that Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. And he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. First Corinthians 15, 3 and 4 says this. And, and so we must be contending for this truth, for the truth, all the time. We don't get days off in contending for the truth. And why is that so important? Well, we, we talked a lot about that last week. Certain persons have crept in unnoticed. Um, our Christian assemblies this morning, throughout this nation, throughout this world, throughout this town, are a mixed race. Because we have children of God who have come to worship His Son today sitting next to children of their father, the devil, who have crept in unnoticed in the midst of believers. And the Bible is very blunt about, uh, about this, this matter. The Bible is very blunt about the people who lead in that way. You have leaders, you have pastors, you have teachers this morning who have crept in unnoticed. And Paul calls them savage wolves who have come in from within and they are not sparing the flock. And they are, they are amidst the body of Christ this morning to tear apart the flock, to, to cause doubt in the Word of God, to deny the sufficiency of the Word of God, to, to water down who Jesus is, to water down what the gospel is, to ultimately deny the gospel, the faith. And we know from Jude that God has judged those who rebel against Him over the course of history. 
in the past. We know that God is still judging today in the present those who do such things. And we know and we can rest in the fact this morning that even if we can't always identify all of these people, they're not fooling God and He will ultimately judge all of them with the harshest of judgments. But in the meantime, you and I, we have to be on the lookout for these people. What Jude calls clouds without water. They look appealing, but they bring nothing with them. Uh, Nothing of eternal value. They are wandering stars who appear to give off light. But they have abandoned the fixed place that God had for them. And they head toward the black darkness. And when they head toward the black darkness, their gravity takes with them all who follow them. So we've got to be mindful. We've got to be on the lookout lest we follow after them. We must contend for the faith. And that means we have to live and breathe and work in the word of God. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Our sustenance is found in the Bible. It's found in the Scriptures. So with that in mind, we're going to see this morning how to be a contender. We saw two weeks ago that we must contend. Last week it was what we are contending against this morning. It's how to be a contender. So stand with me as we publicly read God's Word together. Jude 17 through 25 is our focus. I'm just going to start in 16 to provide the tiniest bit of context. And it says this. This is what the Word of God says. These are grumblers, finding fault, following after their own lust, and their mouth speaks arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. That's who we're dealing with. But you, beloved, must remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy. And for others, save, snatching them out of the fire. And on others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to make you stand in the presence of His glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and honor before all time, and now and forever. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. As we read this, as we read God's Word, how are we to be those who contend for the faith. We know we must contend for the faith, but how do we do it? Well, this text breaks down nicely. And if I had time this week, I would have put together a very neat PowerPoint because this breaks down very nicely into three overarching imperatives. There are three overarching commands given in this passage that, that I see. And the first is this. The first thing is this. We've got to remember the words. We've got to remember the words. There are grumblers finding fault. They are following after their own ungodly lust. 
Their mouths speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of their own benefit. But you, beloved, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Jude says here. Now, to put it another way, we've been told it will be like this. We've been told in the Bible that it will be like this. That there will be unbelievers who creep in amongst believers. Israel had false prophets. There's no reason to believe that today the church will not have false teachers, false brethren. And we see this all over the New Testament. We've been told it will be like this. We've been told before that faithful obedience to the Word of God will inevitably inevitably bring about conflict with a world which in its fallen and unredeemed state is Paul says in Ephesians, alienated from the life of God and it loves the darkness rather than the light. And we know in our Bibles that practically every faithful example in Scripture has come into conflict with the world. Noah came into conflict with the world. Abraham, Joseph, Moses, Samuel, David, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, John the Baptist... And of course, Jesus, who actually, you know, Jesus, the night before he was crucified, told his disciples in John 15, verses 18 and 19. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world because of this, the world hates you. See, your identification with Christ is all the reason the world needs to hate you. So I ask you this morning, I mean, just by way of getting some application right away, does the world hate you today? Does your faith cause the world to hate you? Jesus tells us, told his disciples, a student is not above his teacher. A slave is not above his master. If they hate me, they're going to hate you too. Paul echoes that thought in 2 Timothy 3.12 when he says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, not might, not perhaps, not maybe, but will be persecuted. But does your faith in Jesus cause the world to hate you? Does the world see your faith at all? Remember the words of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. Remember, because they have all told us, they've told us many, many times all over the New Testament that verse 18, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. You know, one of the the biggest problems in assemblies of believers this morning is that rather than remember the words of the apostles, we seem to have forgotten that fact, that there will be mockers. And that doesn't mean that they come in and just go, ha ha, they're not coming into the churches doing, they're mocking God and they're mocking us by their false worship and their false love and their false teaching. And we are quick to acknowledge that there are false teachers out there. That is easy to say right here and now, that somewhere out there, there are false teachers in churches today. But we seem to have forgotten how close they can get to us. And that really was what we talked about last week, how close they can get to us. We seem to have forgotten just how fast they can penetrate 
and sicken the body of Christ like a virus. We seem to have forgotten how quickly they can spread like mold. Even and, and, and when mold comes into your house, a lot of times you don't realize it until there is a lot of damage done, until the, the health of the body of Christ has been severely compromised. We seem to have forgotten, and there has been a lot of damage done. There, there is much sickness in the body of Christ this morning. And as I read the Bible, the only remedy is hard, just as it is hard to disinfect when there's a lot of mold. And if we are to contend for the faith, we've got to do the hard work of discernment. We've got to do the hard work of discernment. Now, now what is discernment? It is the act of being able to distinguish things that are different. And when it comes to the Christian faith, it is the, the ability, the, the God-given ability, I would say, to be able to distinguish the truth from a lie. Or better, the truth from the half-truth. The right from the almost right. The faithful from the masquerading. Beloved, if certain persons have crept in unnoticed, we need to be able to discern just who they are and what to do about them. And the only way we will ever do that is if we measure every word and every action by the Word of God. The Bible is the Word of God. The Bible is the truth. The Bible is the plumb line by which God reveals all that is right, all that is true, all that is good, and by necessity, all that is not. The Bible, the Scriptures are inspired by God. They are without error. They are completely and supremely authoritative. And they are utterly sufficient. So to be discerning, to to, to be able to distinguish the authentic from the counterfeit, we have to do the hard work of reading and studying the Scriptures. And this morning, beloved, I can guarantee one thing, pretty much. That if you are not actively reading and studying God's Word the world is probably not in a whole lot of conflict with your faith. I don't cough all week until I start preaching. Past three weeks, that's happened. But let me just repeat that without coughing. This morning, if you are not in God's Word, the world is not in conflict with you. You are not dangerous to the world. Because if you aren't living by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, then you are living just like the world. And what does James 4 4 say about that? It says, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So where do you stand this morning, beloved? I'll tell you where those who are contenders of the faith stand. They remember the words of God. They remember the words. They remember they are living in hostile conditions. They live knowing there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. So they ready themselves with the truth and they measure everything by the truth. They don't measure everything by how it will be received. 
And I, I just a 10-second soapbox. That's the problem with the Southern Baptist Convention today. Soapbox over less than 10 seconds. Beloved, everything you say, everything you do in life, everything this church believes, everything this church does must continually always be measured by the truth. We've got to always ask the question, even about the most minute things, what does God's Word say about this? How is this helping us glorify God? How is this helping us do what God has called us to do? And that's the way to cut a lot of fat out of our lives and our ministries, by the way. How many decisions, beloved, this morning, how many decisions do you make in your life with that question at the forefront? Not enough for me personally. I mean, I'm always being challenged with this. Beloved, making the Word of God your constant guide, it will bring you, it will bring this church into conflict with the world. And you will be called names. You will be called all kinds of things. And you might face loss too. You, you, you might lose friends. You might have falling out with family. You might lose your job. You might lose your retirement package, your security, your comfort, your safety. You might. You might. And it's at that point you've got to remember that Jesus laid down his life. And all but one of the apostles died terrible deaths. And Paul an apostle of a different kind, died a terrible death. And you'll remember that you're a sinner and Jesus laid down His life for you. And I lost my place. And then you'll have to also realize something else as we look at verse 19. When you are faithful... The conflict isn't your fault. When you are faithful, the conflict isn't your fault. Let's just read verse 19 again. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded, not having the Spirit. Those who contend for the faith, if you contend for the faith, it will cause divisions. We, uh, we just will. Because Jesus did not come to bring peace, but a sword. A man's enemies, Jesus says in Matthew 10, will be members of his own household. Divisions will come if you are obeying Jesus, if you are obeying the truth. But the divisions aren't your fault. Beloved, one of the ways that faithful members of the body of Christ are guilted in this climate today, in this era of, of whatever this is, is being guilted for being divisive. When you stand up for the truth, you are guilted with being divisive. When you faithfully contend for the faith, though, you will not be the guilty party before God because these grumblers, these wandering stars, Jude says it flat out, these are the ones who cause divisions. And Paul agrees. Romans 16, verses 17 and 18. He's closing his letter and has this to say, now I urge you, brothers, to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and stumblings contrary to the teaching which you have learned and turn away from them. For such men are slaves not of our Lord Jesus Christ but of their own stomach and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. 
They are the ones who cause divisions. False teachers seek to divide you. They seek to divide the church from the head of the church, Jesus. They seek to divide the church. They seek to divide you from the truth by convincing you they know better than what God's word says. And that's what's going on in American evangelicalism today for sure. The compromise of the American church is is rooted in a desire to be loved by the world. So it's led churches to teaching all kinds of things and doing all kinds of things for the sake of pragmatism. Whatever works to gain the approval of people. And these pastors and teachers and churches forget that they have forgotten Galatians 1.10. Am I now seeking the approval of God or of men? If I am seeking the approval of men, I am not a slave of Jesus Christ. It's the virus. It's the mold in American churches today. And we've got to be careful lest it become the virus and the mold here. Always. We, the most dangerous thing we could do is assume that everything is always all right here. We have to know the Word of God. We've got to recognize it and act godly and boldly in the face of false teaching. False. Anything false. We've got to remember that those who do these things on the outside, they might look faithful and they might look holy, but when we further examine them against the Bible, they are the mockers following after their own godly ungodly lust. And when we point that out and when we call them to repentance, they are the ones who have caused divisions. They are the ones who have deviated from the Word of God, from biblically faithful teaching. They are the ones who have done it because they are worldly minded and not godly. And unless they prove otherwise by repenting, they don't have the Spirit. They, they don't have the Spirit. And that means they're not saved. They aren't alive. They might be physically alive, but they are still, like Ephesians 2, 1 says, dead in their trespasses and sins. They are sons of disobedience, children of wrath. They aren't saved. And I'm quoting Paul there. Those are Paul's words. Here are Jude's words. They don't have the Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit's verdict, not mine. I'm not the judge of their salvation. The Scriptures are. They are religious frauds. They they pay lip service to the faith. They masquerade as religious. They masquerade as faithful. But they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ by their lives, by their words, by their actions, Or as Titus 1.16 puts it, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. False teachers will speak all kinds of things to you. They will say all kinds of things to you to divide you from the truth, beloved. But you remember the words. Remember the words of God. Remember the words of the apostles. Remember the words so that you will be able to discern the truth from the half-truth and live for the glory of God. Beloved, we've got to remember the words. But secondly, we've got to guard ourselves. Guard yourselves. 
Look at verses 20 to 23 again. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to eternal life. And on some who are doubting, have mercy, and for others, save, (coughs) snatching them out of the fire. And on others, have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. One of the um, one pointer I could give you in Bible study is whenever you're reading a passage, try to identify whatever the main verb is in the passage, because you're going to notice how everything else in the passage is kind of built around that main verb, and the main verb here is is keep or guard in verse twenty one. Keep or guard. Um, We've got to keep ourselves in God's love. Guard yourself in God's love. We can be contenders for the faith when we guard ourselves in, in God's love. So what does that mean? Well, it's really, it's, it's, I'm going to take a little while to explain it, but it's really very simple. Because when the world is against us, it is of great comfort to those who belong to Jesus, who are his His. His, his brothers and his slaves to know that our only master and Lord loves us. He loves us with an everlasting love, with an unyielding love, with an unfading and unbreakable and uncompromising love. Jesus loves us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's Romans 8, 38 and 39. We, I think I read those again uh, last week. But beloved, beloved, when those times come, when our contending for the faith brings us into conflict with the world, with, with friends, with family, with our, with our bosses, with whatever, when times are hard and when we feel beaten down, when we feel alone and isolated and we think it would just be easier to give up the fight and not contend for the faith, it's in those times especially you've got to guard yourself. In the love of God. Keep yourself in the love of God. I go back to John 15 again. More words spoken to Jesus, by Jesus to his disciples that night. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will be able, uh, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. And joy, I don't know if you realize this this morning, but joy is not happiness. Happiness can change in an instant. Happiness can change in the midst of your circumstances. You could be riding high and celebrate, you know, just to, to, to use a stupid sports analogy. You know, your, your team could be up and look like everything's going right. You're about to win the Super Bowl. 
and then you, you throw an interception and the guy returns it for a touchdown and you're, dead, you're down and you lost. Your happiness turns into something else. Your joy should never be affected like that. Joy does not equal happiness. Happiness is temporary. Joy is an inner disposition of the heart toward God that is not shaken by circumstances. And Jude gives us some ways we can guard ourselves in God's love and keep our joy. And the first thing he says is building yourselves up on your most holy faith. Building yourselves up on your most holy faith. In other words, you know, we've got to be strong in doctrine. Don't get don't 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 lose me when I say doctrine. We've got to be strong in doctrine. The mindset of the modern day evangelical seems to be something I've heard some pretty famous people say and write. I've also heard family members say it. Don't give me doctrine. Just give me Jesus. Don't give me doctrine. Just give me Jesus. That sounds good. That sounds pious. That sounds even spiritual. It sounds like someone just wants to focus on Jesus. But I'm here to tell you this morning, it's a ridiculous statement. Because it goes against pretty much everything Jesus taught. For example, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Because the moment you answer that, you're getting into doctrine. It takes doctrine to understand who Jesus is. Because which Jesus do you want? Do you want the Jesus of Mormonism, who is a brother of Satan? Perhaps you want the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who deny that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you want the Jesus of Islam, perhaps? Or of universalist or of theological liberals who just want to dumb down Jesus to his, his moral teachings. Because how do you know what Jesus you want if you're not strong in doctrine? How can you be building yourself up in your most holy faith if you don't know the faith? Brothers and sisters, this is not optional. You cannot say, you know, I'm no theologian. Yes, you are, whether you realize it or not. We're created in the image of God. You are a theologian, whether you realize it or not. This is not something you can say, well, you know, I, I just kinda I kind of leave that stuff to the pastor. No. Because how will you know if the guy you're sitting under his teaching, how will you know if he's faithful? Or if some person has crept in unnoticed. If you don't know the truth yourself. If you don't build yourself up. It does say build yourselves up. Your learning in Christ is not a passive activity. It's not something that happens to you. It's something you actively take part in. John writes in 1 John 2.14 that those who overcome the evil one are the ones in whom the word of God abides. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Beloved, this morning, does the word of Christ dwell in you richly? Because if that answer is no, then how are you building yourself up? How are you guarding yourself in the love of God? And what are you going to do about it? 
We guard ourselves by being strong in doctrine. Second thing we see, we guard ourselves in God's love by praying in the Holy Spirit. By praying in the Holy Spirit. And you pray in the Holy Spirit for the things that are consistent with what the Holy Spirit wills. And and to know that for sure, you've got to be strong in doctrine. (laughs) See how this works? And the Holy Spirit wills the things we see in the Bible, keeping God's commands, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, love one another, proclaim the gospel, you know, the different ministries of the local church, strong and God-honoring marriages, children who love the Lord. This isn't complicated, but we need to be prayers. We need to be praying, you know, not just before meals and not just in times of crisis, but it needs to permeate our lives. Prayer. Paul tells the the church at Thessalonica, pray without ceasing. Now, he doesn't have in mind there that you walk around with your head bowed and your eyes closed all the time, but he does have in mind that you are in a constant state of the heart, a constant state of prayer in your heart. Because... When we are praying in the Holy Spirit, we are submitting ourselves to the will of God. We're acknowledging that we are sinners who are saved by His grace, and thus we are wholly dependent upon Him. And we are saying to God, You are wise. Your ways are best. I need you. And we're trusting in His power. And I'm not just... Asking if you pray this morning, but I'm asking, are you praying in the Holy Spirit? Because it's another way we have to be if we're going to guard ourselves in the love of God. Thirdly, we we guard ourselves by waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. And, And this may be the one that's actually overlooked the most. We wait for the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ for eternal life. In other words, we wait eagerly and anxiously with anticipation, with expectation for Jesus' return. We get so here and now focused. And because we're so here and now focused, we get timid in the faith and we don't do the things we know we're supposed to do. And James says that's sin. And one of the reasons we're so here and now focused is because we are not focusing so much on the return of Christ. It it is mind-boggling to me how much of the Bible is prophecy. How much of it looks toward the future. Now some of that prophecy has been fulfilled, but it's alarming even how much of the New Testament has prophecy in it. And yet we are so 2022 focused. What is going to happen to me today? What's going to happen to me next week? What's going to happen to me tomorrow? And we we don't think nearly enough about Jesus' return and living in light of Jesus' return. I grew up in churches, I grew up in one church, which sang a lot of old hymns, at least in the early days. And a, a lot of those old hymns were about the return of Christ. And I, I regret that a lot of that's been lost in the way our churches worship through music. Because, you know, the Bible is consumed with the return of Jesus Christ. Israel longed 
and still does long for a kingdom ruled by Messiah. Those of us who make up the church, the body of Christ, long for the day when we will be changed in an instant and the dead in Christ will rise first and those of us who remain will meet Jesus in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. We live lives that say, I'm not really sure that's going to be better. And yet 1 Corinthians 4.18 says, Comfort one another with those words. Words that speak of the return of Jesus are comfort to the believer this morning. And I wonder if they're truly a comfort to you. Because we are always so focused on now. And perhaps we wouldn't worry so much. Maybe we wouldn't be so careless. Maybe we wouldn't be paralyzed by anxieties if we remember this world is not our home. And Jesus is coming back. And if you believe in Him, you're going to be with Him forever. And living in light of that promise should be our first priority. When the return of Christ is constantly in our thoughts, informing the way we live, that's a huge part of keeping yourself, guarding yourself in the love of God. Now, those three things I've mentioned, how we guard ourselves, building ourselves up, you know, being strong in doctrine, praying in the Holy Spirit, waiting for Christ's return. These are things that have to do with our disposition toward God. In verses 22 and 23, Jude gives us three more things to do which have to do with people. How do we guard ourselves in the love of God with regard to people? And the fourth thing we see, we guard ourselves by being merciful to those who waver. By being merciful to those who waver. 22. And on some who are doubting, have mercy. And there are a great many people wavering in their faith today. And you might be one of them. I mean, I hope not, but if you are, I hope we can settle that even today. Jude is urging us here to encourage those among us who are weak, who are doubtful. And think of it from Jude's perspective. He was a Jewish believer. He's surrounded by unbelieving Jews. He's facing opposition from Israel's religious establishment. Lots of opposition there. Hostility from Roman governing authorities. He's facing scoffers over here. He's dealing with false teachers over here. And Jude stood strong, but others wavered as they awaited for Jesus, as they waited Jesus to return. And Jude said, have mercy on them. You know, false teachers cultivate doubt. They feed off of it. The savage wolves, they're stalking sheep who seem unsure. And the answer for those of us who are strong in faith is not to pounce on the weak sheep. Not to pounce, but to show them mercy. Don't give them what they deserve, which is what we deserve, which is condemnation. But instead, show mercy. And that doesn't mean that when we encounter someone who's weak in faith, that we ignore the seriousness of maybe some false teaching that they're kind of falling into. That doesn't mean we ignore that. On the contrary, that, that would be unloving. Uh, we don't let the weak in faith be as they are and not correct them from, from straying. But we can be merciful by coming to them graciously with the truth, with patience, with humility. Because after all, you didn't always believe either. 
You haven't always been a Christian. You were once where they were or worse. So we need to show grace and mercy and patience and humility. We didn't always know the truth. So we minister to them boldly, boldly, but with mercy, lest their doubt overtake them. Fifth, the second group of people, verse 23, and for others save, snatching them out of the fire. Folks, if we want to guard ourselves in the love of God, we have to show the kind of love toward unbelievers that God shows and be witnesses. How, how are people saved? By, by being witnessed to with the gospel. Folks, if we want to do that, we, we've got to be witnesses. We must proclaim the gospel to an unbelieving world. Whether it's halfway around the world or at our own dinner tables, we must proclaim the gospel. Because people are dying. And if they die without Christ, if they have not obeyed the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 is clear, they are sentenced to the penalty of eternal destruction. Away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. The the lake of fire. So if we love God, we need to love others enough to get over how they might be offended by us proclaiming the gospel to them because their eternity is at stake. And we've got to, to love them enough maybe to even offend them with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That word snatching there provides the image of almost forcefully taking something or someone. We need to snatch unbelievers from the fire, which today that fire is singeing them. But we need to snatch them away with the gospel before it engulfs them. We need to destroy people's false beliefs and take every thought captive to the Word of God. We need to be bold with the gospel, with the faith. Sixth, verse 23. And on others have mercy with fear, hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. And this is that third group. uh, You have the wavering, you have the unbelieving. Jude's saying here that we guard ourselves in God's love by sometimes even reaching out to the false teachers themselves. And, and, and these times are not as common as those other times, but, but sometimes we who believe have an opportunity to encounter these false teachers um, who have abandoned the faith. And we've got to understand that these people are going to be deeply committed to their own deceptions. You know, Second Corinthians 4 says that Satan is the God of this age. And He has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Now, that goes for all unbelievers. They are all blinded until God makes them alive and He opens their eyes. But but that goes especially for this group, these ones who've crept in unnoticed, because they don't believe, they don't just believe false doctrine, they are promoting it. They are spreading it. And and so Jude uses some some language here to describe these people. And and how are we to approach them? He writes, on others have mercy with fear. Not not fear like being afraid of them. We should never be afraid of them. But rather have uh, have mercy. The the fear here is like a sobriety. 
uh, a seriousness, knowing that if you get too close to those who espouse that which is opposed to God and God's truth, you might be tainted by their corruption. So have mercy with fear, with seriousness, when you approach these kinds of people. Hating the tunic polluted by the flesh. Hating hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. And, And that has the connotation of not to put too fine a point on it. Even in encountering false teachers with the truth, you don't want to get too close because you don't want to handle their dirty underwear. That's what it's saying. Hating even the tunic polluted by the flesh. So with those who have departed from the faith, be very careful around them. Be very careful around them, even when contending for the faith with them. Jude doesn't want you to get dirty. Remember, they defile flesh, so so we guard ourselves in the love of God by being careful. So we remember the words, we, 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 we know the word of God, we guard ourselves in the love of God, we, we're strong in doctrine, we pray in the Spirit, we eagerly await Jesus to come back, we, we reach out to others with mercy. There's one other thing that we need to do, one other overarching imperative. Let's look at Jude 24 and 25 and close this thing out. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, might, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Our third overarching imperative, uh, brothers and sisters, is worship God. How do we contend for the faith? You can't contend for the faith if you don't worship God. Jude has to be one of, if not the least read and least known books in the New Testament. But if you are familiar with any words any verses from Jude, it might be those last two because this is one of the most wonderful, beautiful benedictions, doxologies that we find in any book of the Bible. And it's summed up in two, and by the way, it just strikes me that he's talking about his brother. Okay? And it's summed up in just two words, worship God. Because if you are worshiping God with your life and not just in this room on Sunday mornings, but with your life, then you will be one who contends for the faith. You will be a contender. So Jude gives us some things to remember about God and our place before Him as he closes the letter. First, he says, "Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, who is able to to keep you from stumbling, beloved, you can't keep you from stumbling. Do you realize that? You can't keep you from stumbling." from sinning, from falling into temptation. You don't have it in you because you're a son of Adam. And sons of Adam are sinners. You're a born sinner. And so from birth, your natural proclivity is towards sin. But when God saves you, He gives you His Holy Spirit. And you're no longer a child of Adam. You're a child of God. And something... Something those false teachers, they don't don't have the Spirit, remember. They don't have the Spirit, but the Spirit is in you if you believe. 
And throughout your life, He is sanctifying you to be more like Jesus Christ. The, the Father, through the Spirit, Romans 8.29, is conforming you to the image of His Son, Jesus. So you don't have it in you to keep from stumbling, but God does. So worship God. Second, you can't make yourself stand in the presence of His glory blameless without joy. You can't do it. He can. These are some of the adjectives we, we see Paul describe the unsaved with, which is us before Jesus saves us. Weak or helpless. You were weak. You were ungodly. You were a sinner. You were an enemy of God. So you can't make yourself worthy to be in His presence without blemish. You can't do it. But beloved, through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God makes peace with those He saves so that it's now to Him who makes us to stand in the presence of His glory, blameless without joy. The Father looks at us and sees Jesus, the Messiah, the righteous one. You don't make yourself stand, but in Christ God does. So worship God. Third, now to Him, the only God. Verse 25. Beloved, God is the only God. God is the only God. There is no other God. There is none like Him. Satan is not a false God. He's not a God. I know the Bible calls Him a little g God of this age. But when we're talking about equals with God, there is no other like God. So Satan is a, you know, in that sense, yes, he's a false God. Which means not really. He's not really one. There's only one God, one creator. There's only one who has formed us in our mother's wombs. There's only one who has chosen us in Christ before the foundation of the world. God is the only God, so worship God. Next, the only God, our Savior, through Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. Beloved, our God saves even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, even when we were rebels against His glory, our God saves through Jesus, the long-promised, awaited Messiah of Israel, through Jesus, our Master and Lord. In fact, He's the Lord of lords. God, the only God, is a saving God through His Son. So worship God. Fifth, to this only God, be glory, majesty, might, and authority. His glory is His weightiness. His glory is His gravity, the summary of all His divine attributes. All of God's attributes are divine because He's God. But, but it is the sum and substance of who He is, His glory. As those attributes of His radiate throughout creation. so much, And, and they radiate so much that even Moses was hidden in the cleft of a rock. Do you remember that in Exodus? And... You know, God passed by and, and he kind of catches his backside, but it's not even really what Moses sees that is glorious to him, but it's what God says. If you go back and read that, I think it's chapter 34 of Exodus. It's just an amazing passage. And so how do we worship God in his glory today? By following the words of God. So that rather you eat or drink or whatever you do, you do all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 His majesty. The Father is the, you know, we, we, that word majesty denotes royalty. 
regality. And the Father is the King of creation. And Jesus will reign on David's throne as the King of Israel, the King of kings. He's might. He's mighty. Might. God is all-powerful. He's all-powerful. The extent of His dominion and rule cannot be limited or comprehended. And His authority. God has the power and God has the right to do everything, anything He desires. This goes back to Him being the Creator. God's rules because it's God's world. He has the right to do all that He wills. So glory, majesty, might, and authority, they are all of God. So worship God. And finally, sixth, our God is before all time and now and forever. He is before all ages. That's the past. Both now, present, and forever future. There has never been a time and there will never be a time when God is any less God or any more God than He is right now. He'll never be any less powerful and any more powerful because He's always been all-powerful. He's never any less love or any more love or any less just or any more just. And you get the idea. Our God is eternal. The Father is eternal. Jesus is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. And we are not eternal as far as the past goes, but we will have eternal life with God if we have believed in Christ. So worship God. And then the last word of Jude to which I say amen is amen. So be it. Let it be so. Do it. Amen. We know we must contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. We know we are contending against those who've crept in unnoticed, whom God has judged. God is judging. God will judge. And this, beloved, this is how to be a contender. Remember the words. God said it'd be like this. Guard yourself in the love of God by being strong in doctrine, praying in the Holy Spirit, looking forward to Jesus' return, and, and reaching out with boldness but mercy and seriousness. And worship God. This is how we are contenders for the faith. This is how we contend for the faith And now you have to ask yourself, am I a contender? Am I a contender? With my life, do I really contend for the faith? Do I stand up for the faith? Do I live what I say I believe? kind of cliche to say this that none of us do it perfectly none of us contend for the faith perfectly but in asking yourself whether or not you are contending be honest with yourself we cannot let the fact that nobody except Jesus has done it perfectly become an excuse for us to fail We can't make excuses for ourselves by saying, eh, no one does it perfectly. Our goal is, yeah. 
When we are to strive for Christ's likeness, not each other's likenesses. We are not to compare ourselves against even the best among us. We are to compare ourselves with Jesus. And when you look into the mirror of Scripture this morning, what do you see? Are you contending for the faith? We should be longing for the return of Christ. And until that day, be students of God's Word. Devote yourself to prayer. Proclaim the truth. Worship God. And all the glory goes to Him. All the majesty, all the might, all the authority. Beloved, we need to devote ourselves today to being faithful, to being zealous, to being obedient slaves of Jesus Christ. We go back to the very first verses of Jude. That's what Jude was. That's what Jude is saying we need to be. An in-the-flesh brother of Jesus. That's what he pursued with his life, was to be his slave. And why should you, why should I, why should any of us pursue any less? Worship God. Pursue Christ. As we come to a time of response and commitment, it's time for us to meditate on the message preached. And it's time for you to search your own heart for how God wants you to respond to His Word. And maybe in listening to all of this, it's bounced off of you, I hope not. Maybe, maybe you realize you aren't in the least equipped to contend for the faith because maybe you don't have faith. If that's the case, beloved, I want you to know that Jesus has died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He's raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And if you believe in Christ and His finished work, you will be saved. You're saved. But as we prepare to just meditate on this and pray, and the front is open. I'll pray with you if you want me to. I'll answer any questions you have. However God is leading you to respond, this is a time that whatever lifelong response you have and we have to what God has spoken through His Word today, this is the time that starts. So Father, may you... Through your Spirit, convict us of our sin, compel us to repent, conform us to be more like Christ, and use your word to change us for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's just take a moment and respond.